Welcome to Clark Talks, the Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Katie Gillespie. And I'm Damian Pizzanti. So we've got a really great show for you guys today. We're talking um, all about a series that myself and Patty Hastings have been working on over the last, uh, what has it been, Patty, like a month and a half so far that we've been working on this? series? Yeah, it's a couple months. Yeah. Okay. But this is going to be a really good concentrated look at, at uh, multiple facets that are facing um, that are facing the homeless community in Clark County. These stories are going to run in print um, and online at Columbian.com beginning on Sunday, running through Tuesday of next week. Patty, why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been working on and what stories you've been telling over the course of the last month and a half or so? Okay, um, so I've been working on a story for Sunday that is uh, about the unlawful camping ordinance in Vancouver. Uh, we uh, just passed the one-year anniversary of the revised ordinance, so I wanted to look at you know what's happened during that year, you know how many tickets have been given out, who who have they been given to, why. And remind the listeners what changes did the city of Vancouver make to that camping ordinance. So it used to be that uh, camping in public was illegal at all times in Vancouver, uh, and then uh, they ruled that that was unconstitutional, that you can't you know, prevent people from sleeping, they need sleep. That wasn't because Vancouver was allowing people to do this. this was, that was a decision that was made elsewhere, right? That was actually... Yeah, it was the Department of Justice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So a whole bunch of cities, not just Vancouver, Right, right. So it's not just Vancouver change. that had to make that change. Um, so what Vancouver did is they make it they made it legal to camp between 9:30 p.m. and 6:30 a.m. So they started that I think it officially became a law towards the end of October, but then they didn't start enforcing it until November 3rd of 2015. So I looked at what's happened between November 3rd of 2015 and November 3rd of this year. And so what did you find? I, I found that, you know, a lot of people have been given tickets, about 96 people have been given 150 tickets. This is both unlawful camping and unlawful storage of um, personal property. So are these misdemeanors? Yes, they're misdemeanor crimes, so they're a lower level crime, but, you know, still if you're convicted of it, it's a blemish on your record. Mm -hmm. um, but people will get... Uh, warrants out for their arrest if they don't go to court uh, for these citations. So, you know, you get cited and then you get a court date and you have to go to court and deal with that. And if you don't do that, um, and, and some people don't because they don't want to leave their belongings. So they don't want to, you know, risk losing their stuff so they don't go to court and they miss their court date. And then there's a warrant out for their arrest. So that can add jail time. That was kind of the one of the things I saw when I was looking at the court documents. And you interviewed, um, you interviewed a man named Joey, um, who uh, we have a little clip that we're going to play um, of him describing what you just said. Um, so we're going to go to that clip real quick. I didn't have the means. I couldn't leave my stuff. I didn't have a way to shower and you know be presentable to go to freaking court. It's, I mean, I could. It, I don't have ID. I don't have any of these things because somebody stole one of my things. I stole my ID was taken. Um, it's. Uh, it, so yeah, now I'm faced with having, every time I see police, I get scared for my life. Tell us a little bit about Joey's story. Um, Joey, he has a French last name, he's Gagnier. Um, he is a 30-year-old guy. Um, he's a heroin addict, 
and has also done some some meth and so he's struggling with um, drug addiction and he's living outside typically he's out by share house with his with his girlfriend and he got a ticket while he was sleeping by share house in his in a sleeping bag and he had his stuff next to him in a shopping cart and joey had some concerns about um about the camping ordinance so we've got a clip of him talking about that as well so we'll cut to that and it's you know it's it's not right it's not fair we're all we all live in this country i mean this country is supposed to be the great america you know land of the free home of the brave you know we help americans you know we're supposed to take care of our own and we're not it's like how do we expect people just to know to be up by like five or six in the morning to be out of the to be out of there and just up and ready to go i mean i'm not saying it's unrational for the city to do this but at the same time it's just like this feels like a lot of expectations to put on somebody that like doesn't have a place to sleep at night and probably doesn't even know where they're going to get their food right the uh, vancouver police department did a pretty uh, thorough education uh, campaign before they started enforcing the ordinance so they they gave people a lot of you know notification that this was coming this is coming um but i think a lot of people that are having to deal with the ordinance you know they see well what else am i supposed to do and they just you know are, are okay within the citation because they have no other option and then to talk to us about your second day story on monday you're going to be delving into the shelter system in clark county and and what did you find in that story uh so i found that there's clearly not enough shelter space to deal with um, all the people who, who need shelter, uh, who need shelters. So there's, you know, a thousand, a little over a thousand people who've accessed the shelter system uh, so far this year. And then for all those people, there's 2,550 others who were turned away from the shelter system because there wasn't space. Wow. These are just day shelters, right? I mean, it's like you can sleep there at night, but you and your stuff have to be out of there the next morning. Uh, no, the, the family shelters, you get a room and you can keep your stuff there. The family I visited had, um, you know, a closet space and a couple beds and lots of bins full of their stuff that they were essentially storing there, although they did have their own storage unit elsewhere. Mm, interesting. Now, you talked last time that we brought you on, we talked a little bit about Proposition 1, which was the affordable housing levy that voters recently approved in the election. And um, I mean, have you in the week since we last spoke to you, do you have any sense of how that money is going to be spent? Do we have a clearer vision on on how this may help these people and how it may improve the, the outlook here in Clark County? Or is it still too early to, to say I think it's a little too early to say exactly what they're going to do with the money, but I can definitely feel that homeless service providers are a little more optimistic now, now that they have this new source of funding. Um, so in regards to the shelter system, part of the money can be used to build more shelter space. So, you know, maybe that would go into um, renting out another church like they've done with the um, women's housing and transition shelter that they opened this year. That's a new thing. So maybe they would replicate that somewhere else, um, and then they could also use um, they could also use the money to prevent homelessness. So giving people housing vouchers and um, yeah, cool. Well, hopefully we'll see some improvements uh, here pretty soon. 
So we're going to kick off to our next section. Uh, we're going to be talking to Andy Silver, who is the director of the Council for the Homeless, a great organization here in town. And then we're going to be closing by talking about the story that I wrote for Tuesday, which is regarding um, homeless families and what the schools are doing to help those families. And we'll end we'll end on a little bit of a lighter note. I know it doesn't sound like that, but we'll end with a, a story of hope here at the end. So mm-hmm. Nice refreshing closer for such a serious topic. And a topic that's not going to go away anytime soon, frankly. Hey, everybody. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Columbian Subscription Department. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the newspaper. For only $20 a month, you can get news delivered to your door every single day. But you have to tell them you want to use the podcast special. So be sure you request the podcast special. Call 360-694-2312. This offer is only available to customers that haven't had service in the last 30 days. Okay, so we're going to turn to a conversation with Andy Silver, who is the Executive Director for the Council for the Homeless. Uh, Hey, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, So, Andy, can you tell us a little bit uh, broadly about what Council for the Homeless does and what your role is here um, in our community? Sure, yeah. The Council for the Homeless is a nonprofit, and we work throughout Clark County. We were um, founded back in the late 80s with the mission of leading the community's efforts around preventing and ending homelessness. So we do that uh, in a policy and advocacy role. We do it in community planning and convening. And um, we're most well known for running the Housing Solutions Center, which is a community's one-stop access point for homeless services. How many people do, do you guys serve? So through our, at the Housing Solutions Center, we take about 15,000 phone calls every year on our housing hotline and um, for people who have a range of issues. And then um, we do about um, five or 6,000 housing assessments every year, which is the process that we determine what a family or individual needs and, and what we can offer them. Have you seen the number of people who need services increase? Yes, we've seen um, recently a, a, over a 40% increase year over year in the amount of people who are calling and asking for our help. What kind of help are they wanting? There are sort of two main categories that we see. There are people who are already homeless, so they might be living in a car or outside or, or maybe um, a garage or a camper that doesn't have running water or electricity. And they're calling to see if we can get them into a safer place and if we can help get them um, back into stable housing. And then we have a whole lot of people in our community who are unfortunately are calling um, to, that are sort of on the, on the edge, on the verge of homelessness. And they're maybe in an apartment, but behind in the rent. And they're hoping that somebody can help them stay in the, in the apartment. And we get... Um, we get about 400 calls right now a month of people in that category trying to keep their apartment. And unfortunately, there are just not a lot of resources in the community for that. Yeah, so as a person in that kind of situation that is a few months behind and maybe even facing eviction, like what are your options at that point? Um, right now, there there's a little bit of funding within uh our sort of homelessness crisis response system, but it just pales in comparison to the need. Um, 
talk to us a little bit about how the 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 rent the rent increases that we've seen in our community is affecting this problem. I mean, by some measures, we've been rated as having the fastest rising rent in the country. Um, it's had an absolutely enormous impact. Uh, the cost of housing is both the biggest driver of homelessness in our community and also the biggest barrier to the success of our housing programs that are designed to help people get out of homelessness. You know, there, there are actual um, studies that show that for every $100 increase in rent in a community on average, um, homelessness goes up somewhere between 8 and 30% in that community. So, and we see that every day at the Housing Solutions Center. We see um, families living in their car who might have incomes of $30,000, $40,000 a year, but can't find a place that, that they can rent based off that income. We didn't really see that a few years ago in our community. And as the rents um, have gone up in our community and the screening criteria that apartments use have gotten tighter, it's made it really difficult to get people back out of their homelessness situation and back into stable housing, while at the same time we see more and more demand for our services. But what are some of the misconceptions about homeless people? There are a lot. Um, I, the, some of the biggest ones that we hear are, um, are that, you know, the people who are homeless in our community aren't from here. So I think there's a big misconception that um, it's not really our community's problem. It's, it's, you know, people coming from Portland or people coming from other parts of the country. Um, you hear with that a lot, uh, people who feel like services, so whether that's a uh, food or shelter or a housing program attract people from other communities to access those. Um, doing the work, we don't see that at all. So the, the numbers we see, about 85% of everyone who's been served in a homeless services program, so shelter, housing, etc., in our community had a last known at permanent address that was in Clark County. And the other way you know that that's sort of uh, what, oh, both widely held myth and also not true is that you can just Google homeless magnet and you'll get thousands and thousands and thousands of articles from all across the country because any city or any town in the United States has an article about how they feel like people come from other communities to access their services. Another is that sort of uh, people are homeless by choice. This is something that's widely held. I hear all the time, and generally, people say to me, "You know, well, what, you know, what percentage of people who are homeless just choose that lifestyle? Is that fifty percent? Is that?" And and it's really, you know, from from doing this work, it, it comes down to what does that word mean? Choose. So if if somebody has uh, paranoid schizophrenia and they've been self medicating by uh, drinking alcohol to, to keep warm and, and to deal with their mental health issue. And you go to that person and you say, if you get clean and sober and start seeing a psychiatrist and start taking medication, then I can get you into shelter. That's not a very realistic choice for that person at that moment who doesn't, might have trust issues, doesn't know who you are, um, maybe has been in a program before that didn't work out. 
So if they say no to that, some people would interpret that as choosing homelessness, where, where we would say, well, if you had a more appropriate opportunity for that person, then, then they would jump at the chance to live in housing and then access services that allow them to move forward. And I think both of those myths are really our, um, uh, the community's attempts to rationalize homelessness in a way that allows us to go about our daily lives without just feeling terrible all the time. Because if I have to walk by somebody, a family living in a car in order to go to work, and I think they're just like me, and, and you know, there's no difference in the choices they've made in their life and what I've done, but, but through a set of circumstances, they're living in a car and I'm not, that's a very hard thing to deal with. But if I get to think they're, there's something wrong with them, or they chose it, or they're not from here, that allows me to go about my daily life. Um, but unfortunately, we really need to confront the fact uh, uh, that these are our neighbors and our families and our and our friends, and it's a it's a community wide problem because we're never gonna we're never gonna tackle it if we let those myths drive our thinking. Bear with me as I try to explain this because I think it sounds right in my head. So hopefully, I can translate. There's this idea that if people wanted to improve their situations, they could. That there's enough resources out there that they can make it happen. And by like giving somebody like a place to camp out, or by bringing them food, or giving them money, all you're doing is enabling them and just encouraging them to continue that's you know the, this level they're at, rather than uh, helping them advance their situation. I'm so glad you brought that up because that is, I, I don't know why I didn't think to bring that up. That is a very deeply held belief and it is completely not true. Um, I hear that so many times from community members that, you know, um, from their perspective, there's so many services in our community. And what happens is people confuse the uh, nonprofits that do great work and that they're aware of you know, like SHARE and Impact Northwest and Council for the Homeless and the Food Bank. And they hear about them and they hear us tell the stories of how we help people, which is great. Um, but what, they, what they're not hearing is all of the people who are trying to access our services who can't. Um, and we, you know, just going back to the beginning of our conversation about uh, people trying to stay in their apartments who might be losing them, we get about 400 phone calls a month of people in that category. The level of resources in the homelessness system is about equal to maybe helping one family a month. So about one out of 400 gets help. The community doesn't realize that. Um, so for them, you know, they, they see the person with the sign on the side of the road and think why that person either doesn't know about the services or isn't trying to do anything to, to better themselves, when in actuality that person might have been calling for emergency shelter every night for the last month, and we keep saying, call back tomorrow because we don't have anything available. You know, most people think of, of their home as, as, as the centerpiece of their life for their family. It's where you recharge, it's where you, it's where your kid goes when you get into a fight with them so that everybody can, um, you know, cool off and, and uh, you know, love each other again, and and when you when you're living in a car or a tent or or just out in the elements, I mean, it 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 makes just everything about your life so much more difficult from from.
from the little details to the to the big picture stuff. So I wonder, in Vancouver, is the Section Eight list as long as it is in like other metropolitan areas? What does that look like? So um, the way that Section Eight works in our community through the Vancouver Housing Authority had a complete overhaul about a, a year ago. Mm. So before, uh, historically, there was a very long wait list that I think it was actually closed because it was so long. Wow. So you couldn't get on it for almost seven or eight years. The, um, over that eight year period, they slowly went through the wait list and they were getting ready to reopen it and did a community process um, that we got to be a part of on, you know, what, given the fact that the Section 8 resources are so um, small compared to the overall need, how do we how do we focus them? How do we get the biggest bang um, for the community? And what they decided to do was create two preferences for the Section Eight uh, waitlist. One is for um, uh, families who are homeless who have children enrolled in the local school districts. So that's a, a sort of a school partnership and really trying to stabilize families so that those children can get a good education. And the other partnership is around the Medicaid uh, Health Home Program, which is a program that helps people with uh, a lot of physical and behavioral health challenges uh, who are homeless. So the way it works now is if you are in one of those two preference categories, you go into a pool and then they do a lottery every month, pulling names out of that pool, depending on how many openings they have. So they've moved away from the traditional wait list because of those issues of they get, you know, I used to work in DC and the one in DC I think was like, got up to 20 years at some point of how long it took to get off of it. It seems like though, even with this lottery system and creating these two different classifications of, or two different groups, it's not gonna reduce the number of people that need these services still, is it? It's just gonna change the way they're chosen? Yeah, so this is an issue I deal with all the time because we operate the Housing Solutions Center, right, as the access point. Um, when you don't have the level of resources in the community to meet the demand, you can, you can set things up a lot of different ways, but they're all going to end in the same result, which is that people who need your help and you know how to help them aren't going to get the help that they need. And, you know, so people prioritize, people... Uh, you know, there are different ways to approach that, but the bottom line is, in our community right now, there is a drastic difference between the level of need that people need to help them obtain or maintain stable housing and, and the resources that we have through our nonprofits and housing authority. Do you maybe quantify that? Let, yeah, let me give you a couple different ones. So just of families and individuals who are what, what we call, it's a term of art, literally homeless. So that's a, a technical term that means uh, they might be in an emergency shelter, they might be living in a car or a tent, in a place not meant for human habitation. So sort of the people who are worst off in the community. We have over 700 families and individuals currently on our waiting list at the Housing Solution Center. So that means that they, we've, we've certified that they're in the worst um, need category. They've come to us for help, getting back to that issue of, you know, are, are people seeking services? We know that what help they need, but that help isn't available. So they're just sitting with us waiting. Um, and that's a huge number. That's more than 
you know, we've been, Housing Solutions Center has been around for three and a half years. And I think before a year ago, the highest we'd ever had was maybe 300 households at a time. So it's more than doubled. So that's just households. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. So in, on an indiv- just individually as people, it sounds like that number is well over 700. Yes. Yeah. And I don't, I wouldn't have the, but yeah, you could, um, it'd probably be more, it'd probably be something like double that. Um, then if you go to the next level and say, you know, people who are, are, um, doubled up or couch surfing. So they're, they're, you know, uh, sleeping on the couch in an apartment that another family rents, not in a, you know, not in a way of like, we're all renting this place together, but because they have no other place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just looking at Vancouver and Evergreen school districts alone, they've got about 2,000 uh, children attending their schools whose families are in a situation like that. Mm. We don't have a great way to count for the whole community because, there, of course, there are a lot of people, too, who don't have school-age kids who are in that. But that gives you a sense of the scale of the need in that category. And those are all people who, you know, if they had a Section 8 voucher or if they had a, um, you know, if there was an apartment building, an affordable housing building that charged $350 or $500 a month in rent, they'd, they'd all be stably housed. But instead, they're going from couch to couch or, or um, you know, in an overcrowded or unsafe situation. Well, I think with that, we should call it. Well, thanks a lot for coming on and talking with us about this stuff. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Today's podcast is brought to you with support from the Colombian Subscription Department. Just in time for the holidays, take advantage of big savings on a gift they'll open again and again. For only $20 a month, you can give the gift of local news delivered every day. Call today to take advantage of this great offer. Request the podcast special by calling 360-694-2312. This offer is only available for customers that have not had service in the last 30 days. That's the Cascade Middle School Band. Ginger Markham's 12-year-old daughter, Kaylin, is a clarinet player in the seventh grade there. Next door, Ginger's younger daughter, Emily, who's 10, is singing with the Endeavor Elementary School Choir. I promise you a lighter story, and I promise we're getting there, but bear with me for a little more sad news. Ginger, the 33-year-old single mother of the two girls, was evicted without cause from their home this summer. Here she is talking about it. He came on a Thursday and wanted me out by Sunday. And I was like, that's not going to happen. I said, I've got four years of stuff to move. It's been a hard summer and fall for Ginger. She's been couch surfing with a cousin, then with a roommate, and now with her sister. But at long last, here's the good news. By connecting with the Endeavor Elementary School Family and Community Resource Center, Ginger became eligible for the Section 8 housing lottery administered by the Vancouver Housing Authority, and their name was just pulled. When we started reporting this story, Ginger was clearly in a bad place. This was news that happened to them in the process of reporting this story. Now keep in mind that schools in many ways are the front lines for homeless families in Clark County. 
Evergreen Public Schools, there are more than 500 students who don't have homes. That means they're couch surfing with relatives, their families are in shelters, maybe they're sleeping in their cars, maybe they're sleeping in a tent. But whatever it is, they don't have their own place to call home. For every story like Ginger's, there are literally hundreds of others where the families have not found housing yet. It's a serious conversation that our community needs to address and one that it has certainly begun to have. However, for families like Ginger's, there still need to be more resources. Housing inventory is low, rents are incredibly high and difficult to meet, and families are struggling to get by. But for now, at least Ginger's family can look forward to soon finding a place of their own. In fact, here's 12-year-old Kaylin talking about the possibility of very soon having her own room for the very first time. Sometimes I wish I had a modern room like video games and phone. My bed with that has a fuzzy purple bed frame. A desk for if I have homework. And um, some kids have Xboxes in their rooms and a flat screen. <laughs> Would you like that? Yeah. Man, it was great watching you guys take the helm on that show. It was really good. And although I'm the environmental reporter, um, homelessness and just housing issues are something as a reporter and just a news consumer I am fascinated by. And I think you guys did a really great job with these. So everybody listening to this, be sure you pick up The Columbian on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday and read these stories because you're going to really like them. And this is such an important topic in our community. And, and like Damien said at the top of the show, it's going to continue being a story here in Clark County for so long. We have an affordable housing crisis on our hands here. And um, I, I hope that this levy does some things to address that. But at the end of the day, we need to start a serious conversation as a community. And I'll be very aware of that, of, of the issues that are facing Clark County and the city of Vancouver. So hope this uh, started some thinking for thinking for you guys. So if you guys have any thoughts on what you heard today, we're starting to get some emails into our podcast at Colombian.com email. We love seeing that. We've mm -hmm. been really excited to hear from you. Please keep the emails coming. Keep the thoughts coming. Um, we're hoping to improve this every week and you guys are helping us do that so thanks for listening and and, and send in your notes definitely and um i'm sure any of you who have been listening to this have probably noticed that like sometimes our audio quality sounds better than other times and we're sorry about that we actually just got some new equipment and um we're trying to get better with these things all the time and hopefully these sweet new microphones we got will mean much clearer crisper louder audio so it doesn't sound like we're talking to you from across the room S subscribe to us you were available on stitcher or on soundcloud or on itunes you can get it on your laptop your phone you can get it on your tablet you can get it just about anywhere um, we're literally everywhere everywhere but email us tell us what you think and that is at podcast at Colombian.com. 